0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. In its historical particularity, tragedy has had its first great moment in ancient Athens, where didaskaloi educators would compete for civic recognition, staging increasingly elaborate exchanges of dramatic speeches. And once the great Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and, if Plato tells right, Agathon had their day, tragedy became a site for serious thinking in the West through generations and centuries and millennia. Tragedy was at the heart of the English Renaissance, and the German Romantics and later Continental philosophers seized upon tragedy's philosophical gravity to bolster notions of existence romantic and historicist and even postmodern. Today, Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Miriam Leonard of the University College of London to talk about her new book, Tragic Modernities, and to explore some of the great contests that break out when modern philosophers take on the tragic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Leonard.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, your book's main project as you introduce it is to relate the history of tragedy and philosophy as it moves from universalist to historicist conceptions of consciousness and gender and history and other sorts of things take a moment to tell our listeners about what strong differences lie between universalism and historicism which is really at the core of your project here
1: okay thank you that's a great question so i i think i would say that prior to the end of the 18th century Uh, people looked to Greek tragedy mainly as an object of aesthetic beauty and um, as a kind of preeminent literary creation. And um, up to that point, it was really seen as this kind of uh, what one might think of as a kind of timeless object, uh, which was valuable because of its literary power um, and beauty. But towards the end of the 18th century, a series um, of philosophers, particularly in Germany, started thinking about tragedy differently. And this time, this took two forms. One of them was to start to think about what made tragedy Greek. So thinking about what was specific about Greek tragedy, uh, which related to the historical context in which it was produced. And um, this was really the first time that people started thinking about tra- um, the, the, the concept of Greek tragedy as having a relationship to The ancient world rather than being this kind of timeless genre which which could exist across the ages. So that was one development and that was related to a broader development really in in the way people thought about antiquity at that time. People became increasingly aware of the difference between the ancient and the modern times as modernity seemed to become more and more, um, um, well there was more, more and more awareness of living in a very distinct moment in this period. And antiquity seemed to recede into the past and the differences between the ancient and the modern emerged. And so um, I think this was a moment when people did start to think about tragedy in what one might talk of as a historicist way, being able to think about the difference between ancient and modern and what was distinctively Greek about um, tragic texts. Um, But simultaneously and almost paradoxically at the same time, People started to well these particularly this group of philosophers started to think about tragedy as um, not just an aesthetic object but an object which was interesting for philosophy or interesting for um, questions of ethics or metaphysics or or um reason and so on and so forth and this sort of pulled in the opposite direction. it tended to make one think about these texts as as um, at the purveyors of kind of timeless truths. Um, which uh, could uh, enlighten question those questions in any particular context, um, so the figures that I work on in these books uh, in this book, particularly the early figures I work on, come um, to the question of tragedy at this moment where where tragedy seems to be going off in two different directions on the one hand, people are starting to think about it historically as a product of a particular culture, and on the other hand they're starting to think about it as being a kind of object of um, uh, what an object which has the potential to elucidate all sorts of timeless philosophical and abstract questions um, and um, I'm interested really in how those two strands get negotiated after the um, end of the 18th century and into the 19th century and there's been a tendency in Marx classical scholarship in particular to emphasize the the breakthrough that was made in terms of historicism, that is to emphasize the extent to which these, um, after this moment, one starts to think about uh, tragedy um, from uh, the perspective of its uniquely Greek or even Athenian um, dimension. Uh, And classical scholars have been more um, suspicious of the idea of thinking about Greek tragedy as being potentially available to thinking today, to thinking through a series of what I would say are uh, philosophical questions. Um, All right. Sorry, yes. Go
0: oh, on. no, no, no. I mean, I mean, one question that occurs to me as you narrate that is, was there even a need before the late 18th century for people to claim timelessness for the Greeks? Uh, so in other words, I mean, before historicism, what did timelessness even answer any questions that anyone was asking?
1: No, I think that's right. I think it there, were, there was <laughs> a sense in which the ancients were natural interlocutors up mm-hmm. to that period, and therefore the concept of timelessness was not one that was theorised or, or thought about. It was just that there was a sense in which, when you wanted to, to ask the big questions or, or be present yourself with with great models, where did you look? You looked to antiquity, and um, that that as you say that 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 means that. Timelessness as an idea wasn't really something that was articulated. Um, mm-hmm. It was just a given um, of, of those, that period.
0: Um, right, because it, it occurs to me, and I, I didn't even think about it while I was reading your book, but uh, there wouldn't have been any need to claim that this sector of the literary tradition is timeless if, in fact, historicism hadn't started putting everything in motion.
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um so so yes, and it's it's really that paradoxical uh, realization um that there is this historicist break, which happens not just in German philosophy, the German philosophers, I'm talking about people see it as being um, uh, happening across a a series of different domains, one could think about politics, one can think about um, science, and so lots of different areas, This sense of the the awareness of a kind of split with the ancient world that happens at this moment. Uh, But it's the paradox that that happens at the same time that people start thinking about tragedy as something which is more than an aesthetic or generic category, and and more uh, and, and something which has got to do with questions of existence or questions of metaphysics, um, as you were outlining in your your introduction.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because in this period too, revela- revolution, pardon me, uh, is a political phenomenon that people are starting to recognize as something genuinely new, and so you know when people talk about tragedy it's always going to be in conversation with revolution once you're into this period and and early one of your early chapters deals with tragedy and revolution and you lay out a stark difference between Friedrich Nietzsche's conception of tragedy and Hannah Arendt's conception of the same. Now both of these you know have to do with human futility so what's at stake with the tragic in the face of futility and what possibilities very different possibilities do these two offer when they confront this?
1: That's a a really interesting series of questions, really. First of all, talking about revolution and then the relationship between Nietzsche and Hannah Um, Arendt. You're absolutely right. I I lay quite a lot of emphasis in the book on the, the uh, question of revolution, and it's for the very reason that you just outlined, which is that the figures who start talking about tragedy in this philosophical mode uh, were all uh, all lived through the French Revolution, and figures like he- um, Hegel and Schelling and Hölderlin, who I talk about uh, quite a lot in this book, uh, were all great admirers of the French Revolution. And tragedy for them became a way of thinking through some of the paradoxes and some of the disappointments that um, they experienced with the French Revolution and and the great hope that it offered and then the the desolation that ensued. Uh, So there's a sort of historical contingency between the beginnings of the philosophy of the tragic and the French Revolution, but there's also the way in which tragedy enabled them to think through some of the big questions of the French Revolution, uh, the big questions um, of freedom and agency and action. And it's really as a philosopher of action that I turn to Hannah Arendt, because Hannah Arendt wrote an interesting book on the, um, called On Revolution in the 1960s, uh, which looked at the relationship between the French and the American Revolution. And in that text, uh, she turns at the very end to Greek tragedy to try and understand the phenomenon of revolution. And I was interested in that, um, in that, um, juxtaposition. Um, and there, I'm um, to, to, to talk about how Hannah Arendt comes into dialogue with Nietzsche, um, Arendt closes her book on revolution by discussing a passage, uh, from Sophocles, Oedipus at Colonus, mm. uh, which is a choral ode. So a pass, a choral passage, um, which is often uh, titled um, the, the, the Ode, which deals with the wisdom of Silenus. Um, and the wisdom of Silenus is a, um, uh, a concept from the ancient world, which was first really developed within pre-Socratic philosophy, but then gets used um, as a kind of literary motif throughout Greek literature. Um, Silenus was one of Dionysus' companions, the god Dionysus' companions. And he is said to have uttered uh, the phrase, um, it's best never to have been born, and the second best thing is to die quickly. Um, So uh, this was what the Greeks knew as the wisdom of Silenus. And this ode um, addressed to Oedipus um, in the Oedipus of Colonus utters this statement. And then Hannah Arendt quotes this passage uh, in the closing pages of her discussion of revolution. And here she's really creating a dialogue with Nietzsche because Nietzsche, in his own book, The Birth of Tragedy, had also been fascinated by this uh, choral ode or by more generally this, this idea of the wisdom of Silenus. And Nietzsche associates it with the extreme pessimism of the Greeks. He sees this as evidence of their uh, great Um, pessimistic nature, but also of their ability to confront what you're talking about, the kind of futility of existence. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And for Nietzsche, the way he understands tragedy is that tragedy contains this extremely brutal and difficult truth about life, that life is futile, and that it's best never to have been born. But it does so in a form which is beguiling, which is um, enchanting, which is beautiful. Um, and so for Nietzsche, what the Greeks did was they created this art form which confronted them with these terrible truths about um, the futility of the existence. But they did so in um, in a form that made it palatable, that made it, um, which provided a kind of antidote to the nihilism of uh, the kind of content of uh, Silenus's wisdom. So Nietzsche sees this conflict between um, the extreme sort of pessimism of um, the, the content of tragedy, and this beautiful beguiling form, um, which he calls a kind of veil of aesthetic enjoyment. Um, so, that, so what redeems life for the Greeks is beauty, it's in it's, um, uh, the enjoyment of aesthetics. And so there's a movement in a sense beyond futility, beyond um, Silenus's perspective, through the enjoyment of art that tragedy provides. Now, Hannah Arendt comes back to this very same passage and seems to be very explicitly in dialogue um, with Nietzsche at this point. But she sees a kind of a different antidote to this nihilistic worldview. And she sees a different antidote at work um, in the specific tragedy that she's talking about, which is the Oedipus at Colonus. And the Oedipus at Colonus tells the story of how Oedipus, after he gouges his eyes out, Um, in the aftermath of the revelation of his incest and his parasite, he then goes into exile from Thebes and ends up on the outskirts of Athens. And Athens was um, a democratic city. And in the Oedipus at Colonus, we get told the story of Theseus, who's the ruler of Athens. And and he takes Oedipus in as an exile. He gives him um, a home in Athens. And uh, he, he... um, allows Oedipus to enter this, the city of Athens at this moment. And what Hannah Arendt wants to, to show is that there's a contrast between, um, in, in Greek thought, between this uh, idea of futility that, that Silenus is uttering, this idea of uh, the, the um, desperate sort of pointlessness of life in, in some ways, uh, but also through this, this uh, play, how what she calls the polis, the city, can be a kind of site of redemption, that it can be a place where one's political actions um, can be contrasted to the kind of nihilistic view that Silenus uh, espouses. So when Nietzsche sees aesthetic enjoyment as being the antidote to uh, futility, um, Hannah Arendt sees political action as being a way to move beyond the kind of resignation that comes with um, the insights of someone like Silenus. Um so so I th- so she's, she uh, goes back to the same passage that Nietzsche t- uh, talks about, and then twists it in a different direction. I would say there is less of a contrast between them than perhaps I'm suggesting, because one okay. of the things really important for Arendt is that she thinks that tragedy is the kind of aesthetic form in which these political actions get commemorated. She sees poetry and art as playing a very important role in commemorating action. um, And that's why tragedy is important because it plays this role of um, keeping those actions alive through different generations, the memory of those actions alive. So in the end, she's also interested in poetry and in in art, Mm -hmm. uh, in its relationship really to action. And that's what's, what's interesting there.
0: Although the really strong contrast that I saw there was that Arendt seems to regard tragedy as leading towards action, rather than rendering it meaningless, and and it, it was instructive to me to read this chapter because I had always thought of tragedy as an inherently anti-revolutionary genre, uh, something that says that you know no matter what your best efforts are, some god is going to squish you like a bug nonetheless. Uh, but it's interesting that, you know, a number of the, the philosophers that you deal with in this book treat tragedy as, uh, if nothing else, and I mean, I'll go ahead and turn to Raymond Williams now. You know, he talks about tragedy as a, and I'm quoting here, a tool in the diagnosis of alienation, close quote, rather than another guard against revolutionary consciousness. Um, Talk about that move, because honestly, it's something that I really wasn't aware of in the history of criticism. Uh, other than Arendt and Williams, I mean, is there a whole lot of, of movement in the classics field to regard tragedy as something that inspires rather than quashes revolution?
1: Well, that's a very interesting uh, question, because I think you're absolutely right. There's there's a very strong tendency to think about tragedy as being really about resignation or quietism that, 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 that right. When, when once you say confronted with futility, uh, it, one, it, the, the idea of taking action seems seems pointless. Um, I think what Arendt is articulating there is the idea that action becomes all the more meaningful uh, when one is confronted with this extreme um, nihilism really it's it, it that the 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 way in which one is the sort of overcoming of nihilism which is what's really interesting about tragedy that it doesn't end there there's and i think there's i i use the phrase in the book quoting from the political theorist um bonnie honig about how tra- tragedy is about acting in conditions of impossibility and i think that's exactly what's so interesting about tragedy that it creates these conditions in which action is incredibly difficult but it's almost because it's so difficult that actions become all the more, more meaningful um and um she she she's writing particularly about antigone and one can definitely see there how um that that uh, th- the way in which uh, antigone's actions have inspired other actors throughout the ages i think is testimony to to the way Uh, that we can think about tragedy as being uh, a spur towards action and not just a way of thinking about resignation. Now, for specifically, Williams, uh, he's a very interesting figure. Raymond Williams wrote this book called Modern Tragedy, again, in the 1960s. um, And he was responding partly to his Cambridge colleague, um, George uh, Steiner, who'd written a very well-known book called The Death of Tragedy earlier in the 1960s. And what, one of the things that Williams wanted to do was move away from the idea of tragedy that, that Steiner had had put forward, which was this very sort of elitist vision of tragedy, of, of an idea that tragedy is all about kings and aristocrats and nobles. Uh, and that's why Steiner makes the argument that we can't have modern tragedy, because our worldview is so separated from that of the Greeks or even from Shakespearean tragedy. Um, what... Raymond Williams wanted to do was show that there are everyday tragedies, if you like, there are tragedies which affect um, common men. Um, There are tragedies that we we are still confronted with on a daily basis, and that they should have the same status as these other forms of tragedy, and that we live amongst tragedy, that tragedy is something that happens um, to people. It's not something that only happens to kings and aristocrats. Mm -hmm. Um, And that therefore, it's it's an, a very interesting, for for, for, um, for Williams, it becomes a very interesting, as, as you said, diagnostic tool for making sense of some of the tensions and contradictions of society, for making sense of inequality, for making sense of um, difficulties confronting people. And he, I mean, he's writing in the middle of the 20th century, and so he, he's very aware that there have been some very major tragedies that have happened in the 20th century, and he thinks that we're losing... A kind of vocabulary, we're losing a a resource really for making sense of those questions by allowing tragedy to be co opted on the one hand by people like Steiner who have this very elitist vision, and on the other hand by more conventional Marxists who express the idea that you were suggesting, which is tragedy can't really offer anything because it, it really encourages a resignation rather than. A reaction, and I think he thinks that tra- tragedy is is a tool to make sense of contradiction, and it's more, as likely to inspire action as it is resignation. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's trying to discuss. And here, one of the figures who's very important for him is is Bertolt Brecht, mm-hmm. and his plays were doing something. Uh, similar to that. they were, they. were Some of them were tragic in their form, but they were trying to inspire people to go out and act after seeing them. Um, and so I think that's one of the backgrounds to his ideas.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, certainly Brecht is one of those figures in the mid-20th century that I think of when I think of tragedy. The other is Arthur Miller, though, did, uh, and I've only dipped into William's work, did he interact at all with Arthur Miller? I mean, who has a, a far more, I think, Euripidean, outlook on things
1: yeah he doesn't in that book um so he 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 talks about ibsen he talks Mm -hmm. about um brecht he talks about um beckett to some extent but he doesn't so much with arthur miller but it's it's a it it is interesting as you say that there are these very different um models that emerge one could think also of eugene o'neill as giving Also, Mm -hmm. he's also quite Euripidean in his, or Tennessee Williams. I mean, there, there are lots of different models of, of tragedy. Um, but it, but what, what I found quite interesting about both um, Steiner and and um, uh, Williams is that they actually look at the same canon of texts and come up with kind of diametrically opposed readings of them. Um, so it's, it, it's, it. there's clearly a sort of very interesting particular moment where a series of texts, presented themselves as as the object of analysis at that that moment but but um in 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 other ways i was less interested in in uh, thinking about kind of well, williams led me a little bit in that direction but thinking about um dramatic texts and more interested in thinking about the kind of more theoretical um oh takes certainly
0: certainly things, so. mm-hmm. yeah. well, well going back to the you know the the 18th and 19th centuries. I mean, Hegel, uh, his reading of Oedipus that you present in the book seems to, and and I might even be understating this. It seems to border on the allegorical. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tell our listeners about his reading of Oedipus's confrontation with the Sphinx and how he reads the history of Western thought in that scene.
1: Okay, that, I think you're you're quite right. I I think the the uh, the idea of it being an allegory is is absolutely correct. Um, so. Hegel um, writes about lots of different tragedies. Um, His his favorite tragedy is Antigone. We might come on to talk about that later, but he has this very striking moment in the introduction to the philosophy of history, where he talks about Oedipus' encounter with the Sphinx, as you were saying. And Oedipus, uh, sorry, Hegel sees Oedipus' encounter with the Sphinx, I would say as an allegory on the one hand of the West triumphs over the East, and on the other hand of um, human reasons triumph over divine uh, irrationality. So how he, he presents it is um, he, he looks at Oedipus's encounter and the, the riddle that the Sphinx poses to Oedipus. And um, you, you'll remember that the riddle that the Sphinx uh, poses to Oedipus is um, she, she asks him, what goes on four feet in the morning, two feet at midday and three feet in the evening? And Oedipus correctly answers man. Uh, So it's man at the various stages of his development from childhood, when he walks on four um, legs uh, um, through adulthood uh, on two uh, two feet and and in the evening on three feet when he uses a stick. Um, So Oedipus answers um, the Sphinx's question with the word man. And Hegel sees this um, encounter in a sense as another formulation of um, the motto that was inscribed over the Delphic Oracle, uh, which asked the questioner to um, know thyself. Right. So the questioner would come and pose a question and above it, there was this motto of know thyself. Um, and Hegel sees this as a kind of awakening of self-consciousness. When man asked the question um, and to which the answer is man, What he is enacting is the idea that the answer to what? The problems of humanity or to the questions of humanity don't exist beyond man. Uh, They exist within man himself. Man has to look within himself to make sense of um, his identity. Uh, So this is a call to move away from um, a a divine conception of the world, where the answer to humanity lies beyond man in the divine, towards an idea of human self-consciousness. Um, and that's that that's the sort of allegory, if you like, of um, of philosophy, because um, uh, um, Hegel sees this as being the beginnings of philosophy, the beginnings of philosophy, the moment when man turns his questioning back on himself rather than looking outside himself uh, for answers. But Hegel also sees this um, as as I said at the beginning, a defining moment in the development of specifically Western self-consciousness. The Sphinx represents the East uh, for Hegel. She has associations with Egypt. And so when Oedipus, as a Greek figure, comes along and triumphs over the Sphinx, um, he also triumphs over a kind of idea of Eastern wisdom, uh, which is associated with um, divinity and um, with a um, a kind of mysticism, which uh, Oedipus's reason overturns, mm-hmm. um, and so the kind of philosophy that he's talking about, this philosophy which is concerned with human self-consciousness, is an is emblematic of a kind of development of Western thought for Hegel.
0: Right, right. So, and I mean, one of the things that Hegel locates in Western thought is a pattern of contradictions that overcome themselves. Of course, this is the famous. Um, dialectical movement of history. And, and it's interesting because Hegel finds that and of course now I'm going to talk about Nietzsche. I, I think that he might have hidden it in a bush and then found it in the bush. but <laughs> uh, you know he discovers that conflict of opposing rights in history. Uh, but once again, I mean you outline a very different notion of tragedy with Nietzsche, who reads it as a clash not between opposing rights, in a world more broadly, but a clash of dueling psychic forces, uh, sort of within the, the the human spirit, if you will. I, again, I'm interested here in the conflict. What kinds of philosophical leverage does tragedy offer here, as we th- as we think about these visions of human existence and our relationship with larger realities? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you, yeah, um, nature is is as you um phrased it very often seen as rejecting the entire kind of legacy of german idealism that hegel mm-hmm. represents um and specifically in his reading of tragedy he seems to be turning his back on various aspects of the hegelian reading so that would be on the one hand uh, the discussion of oedipus that i was just mentioning in which reason plays an extremely important role so in hegel's discussion of uh, oedipus Really, Oedipus is a figure of reason. Oedipus is a figure whose humanity is bound up to his use of his reason, to his ability to reason. And there are limits to his ability to reason. And that's that's one of the natures the, um, of his tragedy that Hegel acknowledges. Uh, but really, he's Hegel is interested in that kind of epistemological dimension of tragedy, the way in which tragedy is partly about the command of human reason and and how that comes into conflict with other forms. So that's one aspect that Nietzsche really uh, profoundly overturns. Nietzsche's concept of the Dionysiac, um, it has a relationship uh, through the god Dionysus, uh, the god of wine, to the concept of intoxication. um, And uh, in in that idea, one can see that it has a relationship to unreason. Right, it's really a form of madness that that um, that it embodies. And so Nietzsche doesn't see tragedy as being um, about sort of pursuit of reason uh, in 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 any form. So there's that kind of epistemological. Um, dimension of tragedy that Nietzsche takes a completely different take on. But there's also what you were saying about the conflict of rights, how Hegel sees tragedy as a conflict of opposing rights. And maybe I could explain that a little bit. So what what he- The reason why Hegel sees tragedy as a conflict of opposing rights is that he thinks that tragedies only occur when two sort of equally valid positions come into conflict. And his model there is the Antigone. And um, <laughs> the
0: Antigone,
1: the Antigone, what gets opposed is Antigone's commitment to the laws of the family and the divine sort of unwritten laws on the one hand, and Creon's commitment to the laws of the state, human laws of the state. And what the tragedy is about is how these two irreconcilable positions come into conflict with one another. And for for Hegel, this can only be a tragedy because both of them to some extent are right but both of them, their positions are completely irreconcilable so there's a kind of necessary conflict between them and how do things change as you were talking about, this is related to to, um, Hegel's vision of history how do things change? Things change when these two completely incompatible worldviews come into conflict and there's a a destruction that ensues from them Uh, but but the the emphasis really is, is on this um, ethical question, really—the ethical question of how two um, positions, which are equally valid, can come into conflict. Now, Nietzsche, again, he's he's very uninterested and very explicitly uninterested in the ethical dimension of tragedy. He doesn't see tragedy as doing, um, as being, a, in any way, a sort of story of ethical improvement or ethical uh, questions. And he's very explicit about that at the beginning of the birth of tragedy. What he's interested in is uh, tragedy as a form of, of, uh, as an aesthetic object, as, as a, as a, uh, what what we've we've already talked about how he sees insofar as there's a kind of ethical dimension to tragedy. It is the the aesthetics of existence um, and uh, that um, idea. And so, um, when we, we move from the moral plane of Hegel's um, uh, opposition or conflict of two rights to what you were co- talk, talking about as a sort of duelling force of psychic forces between what he sees as the Dionysiac dimension of tragedy and what he calls the Apolline dimension of tragedy, a conflict between the gods, Dionysus and Apollo. And that conflict is not an ethical conflict. It's a conflict between a worldview, which I somewhat uh, already outlined in terms of uh, Silenus. The Dionysiac worldview is one which brings the existence of the individual subject into uh, question, really. the, The sort of uh, the the essence of the Dionysiac is to shatter one's sense of being in some form or another, to shatter the the boundaries of the self, um, and this is contrasted to Apollo, uh, who provides again in in terms of what I was talking about in relation to Silenus, the veil of aesthetic enjoyment. Apollo, in some senses, provides an order and a um, an an aesthetic um, uh, what. what um, uh, Nietzsche calls veil through which to understand the truth of tragedy, and he sees um, tragedy as being a dueling between these two forces: the forces of the Dionysiac, which represents kind of dissu- dissolution, and the f- and the force of the Apolline, which brings things back together in the form of. Um, of the tragedy in the form of the meter of the tragedy in the form of um, the, the um, aesthetic qualities of the tragedy. Um, And again, I think that so, so we have in Nietzsche, as I said, the sort of explicit rejection of the epistemological and the ethical reading of Mm -hmm. uh, tragedy, but you, you maintain the kind of form that Nietzsche uh, that sorry that Hegel laid on the, uh, on the agenda, which is the idea of tragedy as being a form of conflict and that's a very distinctively Hegelian idea. Before Hegel, people didn't really think about tragedy in terms of conflict. Um, even though Nietzsche gets rid of the kind of content of the conflict, he still thinks about tragedy as a form of conflict. And I think in that way, he carries on, in some senses, the Hegelian legacy, even though he explicitly turns his back on it in some way.
0: That's good. That's good. <clears throat> Well, one figure who pops up uh, in your chapter on tragedy and history, I'll admit that I had I had not read at all, I think I had seen him mentioned once or twice, and that is Carl Schmidt. Uh, tell us a bit about Schmidt's place in post-war literary theory and about the historical critical moves that he makes when we turn from Greek tragedy to Shakespeare's Hamlet. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, it's not surprising that you're not very familiar with Carl Schmitt as a literary critic uh, because he was essentially a legal and political theorist and he wrote almost nothing about literature. Um, oh, okay. The one he did write about literature was this little uh, essay or very short book called Hamlet or Hecuba, which he wrote fairly late into his career. Um, and Schmidt is a very controversial figure uh, because he had strong associations with the Nazi party. He was writing during the period of National Socialism. Um, and even after the war, he failed to renege on his allegiance to the party. Um, so he's, he, he he sort of comes with a bit of a health warning <laughs> when one writes mm. on him. But nevertheless, he's become an important figure in political theory today because he he wrote some extremely interesting um uh, works on the question of sovereignty. And also his critique of uh, liberal democracy has made him an interesting figure on the left as well as on the right. So he's a sort of paradoxical figure who's, who's returned to prominence in, in recent political theory. Um, but let me talk a bit about uh, his his reading of Hamlet. Um, I was interested in Carl Schmitt uh, within the context of my chapter on history, because uh, Schmitt provides this Extreme reading. We started off this interview by talking about the distinction between historicist and universalist readings mm-hmm. of tragedy. And Schmidt is one of the figures who one might think of as an extreme historicist. He's someone who thinks that tragedy has this extraordinarily deep relationship to history. Um, and uh, he looks back on the tradition of uh, German thought that I've been talking about himself writing in German and coming out of that tradition in some ways, and thinks that the previous figures that, I, uh, that I've that i been talking about, one could think about Nietzsche, but also Schelling and, and um, Hegel in other respects, have underplayed the importance of history in the development of tragedy. And for Schmidt, um, the reason that he finds uh, uh, Hamlet particularly interesting is because he sees it as an example of a literary text, which is completely um, determined by the historical context in which it's written, uh, to the extent that the structure of the plot, um, the question of why Hamlet doesn't act, the idea of Hamlet as this kind of melancholic who's completely stuck. We're going back to questions of fut- futility here, I suppose, the idea that Hamlet is, is stuck in the inaction. Um, he sees that as not just being a sort of literary trope, as some sort of idea that, you know, tragedy, um, uh, some sort of uh, just uh, an aesthetic quality of the text, but actually being a, a product of the, of the immediate historical context in which it's written. The idea that Shakespeare was ro- living through a period in which questions of um, succession were an incredibly important preoccupation. And that ham- the, the forces of history were so strong on Shakespeare that he actually had to mould the plot in a particular way uh, in order um, to uh, to create literature at this particular time. So, ha- so um, I think Schmidt is an in- an interesting figure because he analyses the relationship between tragedy and history, and particularly, um, and perhaps more broadly, the relationship between history and um, text in a in a distinctive. And um, an extremist way, which can be contrasted with some of the other figures that I talk about.
0: Mm-hmm. And and one of those figures is Benjamin. And and one of the interesting conversations that you pose between Schmidt and Benjamin is whether Hamlet is a and you'll have to pardon my pronunciation on this term is a trauerspiel or whether it is a tragedy. Now, talk to our listeners a bit about what's at stake with this term because that generic distinction. If you look it up in a dictionary, in a dictionary, they seem to be synonymous.
1: Absolutely. And they, and they were actually used as synonyms um, right the way through the 19th century in German and, and continue mm-hmm. kind of synonymous meaning. So uh, you're, you're right that the first person to really talk about this distinction in, in this theoretical way was the figure Walter Benjamin, who'd written his own work on tragedy called The Origins of German Tragic Drama. Mm-hmm. And uh, Schmidt is very much in dialogue with this text in, in his writings. And what, um, as you say, although uh, on the surface of it, Traurspiel and uh, tragedy uh, are used synonymously, uh, the literal meaning of trauerspiel is morning play. And uh, Benjamin, in his text, distinguishes the morning play from tragedy, and he distinguishes Greek tragedy in particular, from um, the development of this genre of mourning plays, which he sees coming into fruition in the 17th century in the German Baroque. And I won't talk about that, because um, it's a whole different um, area. But this distinction is very important, because what, what, what Benjamin um, sees as distinctive about Greek tragedy, as opposed to this more modern form of tragedy, is that Greek tragedy for Benjamin is associated with myth, whereas more modern tragedy, particularly this German Baroque tragedy, um, has a very strong relationship to history. Mm. Uh, so Greek tragedy, when we think about Oedipus or Antigone, well, these are not um, uh, figures of history, they're figures of myth. Whereas uh, when we move into the more modern period, uh, the figures are um, have a kind of historical dimension. And that's what he sees as the important distinction. Now, Schmidt comes along and he takes over Benjamin's terms, but completely inverts them and argues that tragedy is the form that has a relationship to history. And he doesn't distinguish between Shakespearean and Greek tragedy. Uh, he just thinks that tragedy is a form. What really makes something tragic is when it um, is imbued with a sense of history. Uh, and and the the domain uh, which uh, is sort of beyond history, which is not um, engaged in historical questions, is Trauerspiel, the morning play. And the reason why he he is suspicious of, um, and he also, and, and he inverts the, Benjamin's kind of hierarchy. Um, Schmidt wants to stand up for tragedy and wants to debase Trauerspiel. And there's an element of the reverse going on in um, in Benjamin. And the reason why he's suspicious of Traurspiel is because of the word Spiel there, which in German can mean, as in English, both play or drama or play as in game, right? And so um, what uh, Schmidt sees as being important about the term play here uh, or, or game is the idea of art as being a form of game. And he associates that with aestheticism or the idea of art for art's sake. And he sees the morning play as being a form of um, a a kind of aesthetic creation, which is unmoored from questions of politics and history. Whereas tragedy is deeply embedded in questions of politics and history. And that's why he thinks um, it's a, a superior genre. Um so that's that's the kind of game that they both play um with those two terms and the interesting way in which um uh, Schmidt takes over Benjamin's terms and um inverts them and 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 sort of uh uh changes the hierarchy um between them. And the two figures come from opposite ends of the political spectrum in many ways. And so mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the elements of their uh, text which sort of go in the dark the the same direction and where they converge are very interesting from that perspective.
0: Oh, certainly. And, you know, I was a preacher for several years. So, I mean, it's fascinating to see in the realm of Greek tragedy, the same sorts of struggles over the text uh, that so so often happen with the text of the Old and the New Testament, right? I mean, to where you have very strong anti-communist commentaries on one hand in the mid-20th century, and then you have you know, Zizek writing about Saint Paul in the 21st. Mm-hmm. So it's just fascinating that you know this parallel story is going on uh, with with tragedy uh, that is going on really during the same span of years uh, in biblical criticism.
1: That that's absolutely true, and I think I think the relationship to religion is an extremely important, perhaps underdeveloped part of my book because mm-hmm. because um, tragedy is always existing in some. Um, relationship to the biblical texts in the figures that I'm talking about.
0: Mm-hmm, certainly. Well, I want to focus on one of your phrases for a moment here. Uh, the same chapter, the the chapter on tragedy and history, uh, you point to quote a complex dialectic between timeliness and untimeliness close quote that helps us to think historically as we do criticism on tragedy. Uh, I like that you chose the the simple negative untimeliness rather than timeless. Uh, what ground does your project share in common with American New Historicist writing and where do you see yourself diverging from that project?
1: Okay, well, um you you're absolutely right and you brought this up right at the start of the interest uh, of the interview that I'm interested in thinking about the relationship between kind of historical uh ways of understanding tragedy and and what one might call untimely ways of understanding tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a sense that, and I, that...
0: And I appreciate the nod to Nietzsche there.
1: Yes. absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so that, that's one of the, the, uh, it is one of the central projects of the book and where I see it differing from new historicism. I think this is, I might come back to Schmidt here. And when I said, I, I found him interesting as this form of extreme historicist thinker, because he has a lot in common with new historicism in lots of ways, um, The sort of conventional historicists would see literary texts as being a kind of reflection of historical reality. Um, And in a sense, literature and history are autonomous realms, but one can use literary texts to see a kind of echo of the history going on in the background. And new historicists tended to collapse that distinction. And see texts in some ways as as the agents of history. If one wanted to understand history, one would be as well reading literature or even non-literature, right? They they, they um they um got rid of the distinction in some senses between high literature and and popular culture in sorts mm-hmm. of ways. So they looked at all the sorts of products of culture as being intimately part of history and being um a a way to get to grips with the developments of history and um Schmidt does that too. Schmidt doesn't want to see a um, if he if you like you know if you, uh, he he reads tragedy as being this extreme um, his, as being very revelatory of historical moments and therefore as being as as I said a, a minute ago a kind of agent of history. But he has a much more conflictual sense of the relationship between history and And um, text, so in new historicism it's sort of collapsed, and they sort of have a happy symbiotic relationship in um, in Schmidt, history ha- sort of exerts a violent force on culture <laughs> so history okay. feeds into culture and really shapes culture in this very directive way. and I think um, I think what he has in common really with some of the other figures I was thinking about is that, again, if one thinks back to someone like um, Hegel, when he thinks about tragedy, he does think about it as giving an illustration of a moment in in history, right? He thinks it tells us something specific about Greek culture, but he also thinks it tells us how to understand history. He uses tragedy to model how history functions. He uses tragedy to make sense of the development of history, to make sense of how uh, moments of extreme change uh, can have a kind of force of tragedy. Uh, and that's one of the things that I was interested in, is sort of moving beyond thinking about um, texts and history as being um, symbiotic, really, to thinking about how texts can kind of act in history in this more, um, well, or, or, or the other way around, how how history can mark the developments of text. Um mm-hmm time. And, and so I, I, I think um, I, I would not consider my project a new historicist project, but I am interested precisely in different ways of, of thinking about the ways in which tragedy and history have interacted and how tragedy has provided models for history as well as the other way around.
0: All right. All right. Uh, well, we're closing in. I want to talk about your your last couple chapters. Your, tra- your chapter on tragedy and gender was far more familiar territory for me. I think that for a lot of our ris- listeners, pardon me, Sigmund Freud's appropriation of Sof- Sophocles is a story that you know, basically defines how they learn tragedy. It certainly was for me. Um, with that said, even though it's probably more familiar to our listeners than most of your book, talk a little bit about how this chapter digs into differences between what you call humanist and anti-humanist readings of tragedy and give our readers a sense of what's at stake in that distinction.
1: Okay, sure. Um, Well, we've already seen how um, Oedipus was co-opted by figures such as Hegel to represent a form of humanism. And there, as as, um, we saw, Oedipus's fate is, um, in a sense, the fate of humanity writ large. And in Hegel, Oedipus is human because he uses his reason to defeat the irrational forces of the Sphinx. Now, Freud is interesting because he also thinks that Oedipus represents humanity in general. And he repeatedly says in his text that we're all Oedipus, right, we all have Mm -hmm. to go through our Oedipal development. Uh, But he seems to be turning the older humanist reading on its head by arguing that what binds us together is not our use of reason, but its opposite, our unconscious, right, our, our inability to where Hegel says, one needs to know us, know thyself, right? We need to know ourselves. Uh, Freud thinks that what we all have in common is that we don't really know ourselves, because we have this unconscious which inhabits us, that we are unable to control. Right. So on the one hand, uh, Freud um, lays the emphasis on our common humanity in our, perhaps our irrationality rather than our rationality, and on the other hand, he lays our common humanity. Uh, um or sees our common humanity through the prison of our sexuality which again is something very different from the kind of humanist reasoning uh, that we get in um in Hegel so mm. Oedipus um in Freud in a sense becomes an anti-humanist figure because he's a figure who is uh, governed by irrational forces, he's a figure who doesn't know himself, he's a figure of a kind of wounded humanity rather than a humanity which is proud of itself and its self-assertion. Um, so that's, that's the ways in which I, I would think about um, uh, Freud sort of using tragedy to in a sort of anti-humanist direction. On the other hand, as, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, it is interesting that Freud still thinks that we are all Oedipus. And right,
0: right. So he's no historicist.
1: He's no historicist, but he's also someone who doesn't really think about the difference between sexual difference, if you like, the difference between the experience of being a woman and being a man, because mm. he doesn't want to concede that women are also Um, you know, might have a different configuration of their sexuality. And he also doesn't distinguish between uh, the particularities of the kind of Western bourgeois families that he was coming into contact with at the start of the 19th century and different family configurations that might appear in other parts of the world or in, in other historical contexts, as you say. And so there's a way in which uh, Freud's edipus is a form of kind of old humanism, right, That that, it, that is, a, is unable to deal with differences of gender, of culture um, and of History in that way, so I think Freud is an interesting figure, and his Oedipus in particular is an interesting figure on the sort of cusp of humanism and anti-humanism, mm. um, and that, that's one of the elements that I'm interested in in the text. And and really, what I, one of the conclusions I come to is that tragedy seems to in all the figures uh, I work on, sort of exist on that cusp. It has resources for for humanism, but it also has resources for the critique of humanism. And I think Freud is very much emblematic of that, that double dimension.
0: Right. Well, if you're going to talk about Freud and you're going to talk about theory, you're also going to talk about Lacan. So your final full chapter traces theory's movement from what I see as individualism to something more like intersubjectivity. When we talk about tragedy and the philosophy of the human subject, so briefly talk our readers through so significant moments from the Romantics to Nietzsche, then from Nietzsche to Lacan, as we think about, think through ways that human life gets articulated in the tragic.
1: Yeah, so um, I think you're you're absolutely right in laying emphasis on this movement from individualism to intersubjectivity. And that's one of the things I was interested in exploring because uh, there's a very strong tendency to associate romanticism and the German idealist I talk about with, with the notion of individualism. With the idea that their interest in tragedy is their interest in in covering the sort of particularities of individual subjects, and this is uh, marked out by their interest in individual protagonists in Greek tragedy. The figures they're interested in are the great heroes, the, the Antigones and the Oedipuses and the Orestes, uh, not the chorus, for instance, who are this mm-hmm. kind of a mm-hmm. anonymous collectivity. Um, so I think I think. Uh, that there is some truth to the critique that that these early figures were really interested in what tragedy could tell us about the kind of trials of the individual, the suffering of the individual, rather than a um, an idea of uh, tragedy as being something about what I come to talk, talk about in terms of intersubjectivity. Nevertheless, I don't think that's quite true. I do think that, that um, uh, when we think about Schelling and Hegel, one of the things they're talking about are the difficulties of what of being an individual. right? They're, they're, they're talking about the identity of what they call the subject, but they're also talking about how the subject is always coming into conflict with others, always coming into conflict with the limits of his own capacity to do things, and that's what tragedy is constantly doing. It's putting these protagonists into dialogue Dialogue with others, other protagonists, with the chorus, and so on and so forth. So the possibility of kind of remaining a bounded self or an individual in Greek tragedy is constantly under threat. And I think even the early Romantic figures that I talk about were aware of this. But this becomes an increasing tendency in the in the discussion of tragedy. That realization of the difficulties of the kind of bounded individual uh, becomes a really um, a major. Uh, di- dimension of Nietzsche's understanding of tragedy. because so when Nietzsche comes up with the idea of the Dionysiac, we've already talked about how Nietzsche's concept of the Dionysiac is bound up with this idea of the destruction of the subject, the idea that we um, are confronted with our own dissolution. And Nietzsche has much more obvious attention to the chorus uh, than his uh, his German predecessors. And his model of tragedy really is opera, right? Mm. And and he he's thinking about Wagner's operas, but I think he has this very musical understanding of tragedy, and it's very and and what, what he's talking about with music is is an orchestral ensemble. He's not talking about a soloist, right? And so so I think Nietzsche thinks about tragedy much more in a kind of collectivist um, dimension, and um, uh, he his his interest in tragedy is precisely the way in which the individual gets confronted with the loss of his individualism. That's, that's what Nietzsche is really ultimately interested in. Um, you wanted me to talk a little bit about Lacan, who, who's mm-hmm. a, a further evolution of this idea. And the way in which I think uh, Lacan sort of illustrates the problem of what we were terming intersubjectivity is um, that uh, in the book, I look particularly at his discussion of Oedipus at Colonus as the play that comes back in various chapters. Um, but what what he wants to show, really, is that the tragic subject. So even a figure like Oedipus, who, who we've been seeing throughout this interview, is this kind of iconic figure uh, for a lot of these figures. Even um, Oedipus is not really... Uh, even though he has this great power and he's this extraordinary hero, so he might be associated with individualism, he's not really in control of his own um, fate or um, his own identity. And one of the ways in which he's not in control of his own identity that Lacan shows is that through his use of language, the very moment that Oedipus starts to speak, Oedipus is, is forced to speak in a language that isn't his own because what Lacan points out is that when an individual subject is born and enters into language starts to speak he the the individual subject is becomes subject to language which is something which is beyond their his his or her control which is a kind of collective um uh, entity which exists beyond the individual and so um language is really a kind of illustration if you like of our intersubjectivity. subjectivity whenever we speak we're always entering into a form of communication and with communication that always involves at least two people right mm-hmm. and so there's a sense in which um uh, all of us uh through the use of language are um sort of uh, thrown into the world uh, in a way uh, that that makes our individual, our experience as individuals, um, constantly subject to uh, the wills and desires of others uh, in various ways. And I think what what I really wanted to illustrate um, in this chapter is that there's no doubt that some of some of the reason why tragedy is so powerful is because of its tra- its powerful individuals. That you have these heroic figures who undergo these extraordinary um, toils as individuals but what tragedy constantly stages is how individuals are coming into contact and conflict with others and that, that there's no there's no tragic suffering without debate with with another protagonist or without um or without argument with a chorus and so on and so forth so tragedy has these extraordinarily powerful individuals but it shows how the predicament of these individuals is intimately tied up to others and that's why I think it's, it's very, um, a very good way to think about an intersubjectivity um, as well as individualism and, and the subject.
0: Very good. Well, you finish your book with an important insight that you bring forth once more from R- Raymond Williams, namely that tragic does not have a single meaning so much as a history of reception, a plurality of possibilities for reading. What makes that historicist final word important enough to make it your book's last big thought?
1: Well, yes, it's it's certainly one of the things I try to bring out at the end of the book. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's the only one, but 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 it's interesting that that, um, that history and questions of historicism have... Have been quite a uh, sort of dominant part of our discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think again, Raymond Williams is reacting to a figure like George Steiner, who thinks about tragedy as a kind of fixed and timeless category. Um, so he looks at an age and says, "Is it tragic or is it not?" He thinks, "Does it does it fit with a certain world, well, w- with a certain kind of contained and bounded set of criteria?" And if it doesn't, then it can't produce tragedy. Williams, on the other hand, sees tragedy as something that's constantly evolving, that you can have tragedy in any age, uh, it will take on different features, but it will still be tragedy. And um, he sees the no- notion of tragedy thus encompassing um, the history of kind of dramatic performances, so different different. Um, uh, instantiations of tragedy in figures from Aeschylus to Shakespeare or to Hacin or even Brecht and Beckett, as we were discussing uh, before. But he also sees tragedy as encompassing the whole history of reading that we've been talking about, which stretches from Aristotle through Hegel to Freud and even to Williams himself. Um, so all of these different um developments in tragedy, both in its dramatic form and in its theorization, contribute to our understanding of tragedy today. And I think it's only by acknowledging that, acknowledging the ways in which tragedy evolves uh, through these different reinterpretations, that we can make sense of why tragedy is still such a powerful term for us today.
0: Very good. Well, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word today. As we finish up, what do you want our listeners thinking about with regards to tragedy, the tragic philosophy, the death drive, or whatever else?
1: Okay. Um, Well, I, I think, as I said a minute ago, I think we've been talking a lot about questions of history, and that was a really important part of the book. But one of the other aims of my book was to show how philosophical readings Um, interact with political readings of tragedy. I think there's been a tendency not just to think about tragedy as either being universalist or historicist, but also thinking about tragedy as either being political or philosophical. And um, I think this is something that I've been frustrated with in a lot of the uh, literature that I read in my own discipline, which is classics, which is people who are interested in the political reading of tragedy tend to get caught up in questions of um, the uh, the specific um, democratic form in which tragedy um, took shape, uh, the specifics of kind of historical developments in fifth century Athens, rather than looking at broader political questions which arise from tragic texts. And also, uh, they tend to uh, disregard the insights that political philosophers have had into tragedy, And I think um, one of the things I was trying to do was showing that there is this very rich resource within tragedy, both for thinking about modern political questions, but also um, a way in which modern political questions can throw light back onto the tragic texts themselves. So I really wanted to think about a way of reconciling kind of philosophical approaches and political approaches to tragedy in the book.
0: Well, Miriam Leonard, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And listeners, thank you for downloading and sitting in on our conversation here. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And this is Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.